The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Tyler Matheson. In for Kelly Evans, here's what's ahead this hour. Intel down, double digits, weak guidance there. But one of our guests still believes in the company's turnaround story, and she is bullish on the stock. She'll tell us why and what else she's uh, buying in tech right now. Plus, we just got the last key data point on the economy before the Fed meets next week. But did it change anything on what, can we, what we can expect and what the market hopes to hear from the Fed from here? We will discuss that. And it's been a bad week for several high-profile names. Our trader is bailing on three of them, but buying on one she calls seriously cheap. But we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu. He's got the numbers. Hey, Dom. All right, relatively calm, Tyler. And we are on pace right now for a decent 1% gain in the S&P 500 if things kind of settle where they are right now. But it's been a mixed picture so far. Tech is underperforming. The Nasdaq Composite at 15,441 is down 69 points, or roughly one half of 1%. The Dow Industrials modestly flat to slightly higher at 38,053, up just four whole points. That's not a lot. And the S&P 500 is at 48.84, down about 9 to 10 points right now. One quarter of 1% declines. Uh, It's been a fairly tight range so far, but we're trending towards the downside of things. At the highs of the session, up 12 points and down 12 points at the low. So, again, a decent range that's fairly tight, still tilting towards the lower end of that. Uh, The week overall has very much been focused on certain key names that have reported earnings so far. If you take a look at the overall picture for the last week, The communication services and energy sectors have done the best. Communication services being helped a lot by that big jump in Netflix shares over the past week. Meanwhile, consumer discretionary is down about 2%, the worst performing sector in the S&P for the week. And that's due in large part to the drop in Tesla shares uh, tied to earnings. So keep an eye on those particular sectors over the last week. They're the ones that really stand out. And then, Tyler, you mentioned Intel. Just to kind of put things in perspective, this is a Dow component, big chip company out there, down 12% on the day. Uh, That move right now still kind of underscores a little bit of what's happening, even though it's still up 45 percent for the year. But as you point out, the outlook is what's got people worried. And by the way, even last quarter, they saw a slowdown in their unit that handles things like data center chips and artificial intelligence applications. So keep an eye on Intel. Big move for a Dow component. I'll send things back over to you, Ty. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Uh, Intel is where we begin today, and CEO Pat Gelsinger's messaging that things will improve over the course of the year. Here's what he told John Fort. We don't see any unique inventory issues outside of the non-core areas that we've already talked about. So we think the Q1 guide is just where the market is right now in terms of its outlook. And we see our products are well positioned, our uh, competitiveness is good, our market share is solid, and we believe that we'll be improving in all of those metrics as we go through the year. All right. For the full interview, you can tune into Closing Bell Overtime at 4 p.m. Eastern today. Now, the stock, we should note, is down nearly 30 percent since Gelsinger became CEO of Intel. Despite that, our next guest says she still believes in the Gelsinger turnaround story, which she says isn't near its end yet. And she remains bullish on the stock long term. 
Let's bring in Kim Forrest, CIO at Bouquet Capital Partners. Kim, welcome back. Good to have you with us. The issue here Thanks is for- not the, the, the company's past performance. Their earnings beat. Their revenues were higher than expectations. It's all about first quarter guidance here, and that's why uh, the stock is getting taken to the woodshed today. Correct? Sure. And, uh, you know, this is what happens when companies set a really, oh, sorry. This is what happens when happens when companies set a really low bar. And I think they're setting it appropriately. Some of their um, caution has to do with the chips that they sell into the telecom in, in, in the area. And that is an area that's been very soft for the past, I don't know, maybe 12 to 18 months. And it continues to be soft. But more than that, I think. Doesn't want to overpromise, and that is what they've really done here. Is definitely not overpromise. Yeah, they're underpromising, if anything. And as Dom pointed out there in his report, I don't know whether you were able to hear it. He said that there was, uh, I guess, some weakness in uh, AI chips and data centers. Well, those are the two buzzwords these days, right? And, and if you're not if you're not hitting there, if you can't say we got AI chips and we got data centers and we got it covered, you're going to get you're going to get uh, penalized. You seem to think, though, that in the long run, this is a stock to own, right? We do for two reasons. Is AI is white hot right now, and um, specifically NVIDIA chips are white hot. But here's the thing: if if you if you could get performance to NVIDIA at less than the price of an NVIDIA chip, I think you have a winner. And that is why I like both AMD and Intel because that they're going. The second reason is AI is going to create a tremendous opportunity for downstream chips, and that includes data center buildouts, which which they are either being right. built and soaking up all the chips or the companies are taking a break about build out. So it is an erratic kind of cycle. All right. Well, speaking of erratic, the uh, I'm afraid the audio is a little bit erratic on your feed, Kim. We're going to break away. Uh, thank you for your perspectives today. As always, uh, we appreciate it. We're going to sl- slip away now, however. Uh, thank you, Kim Forrest. Let's turn to the economy and core PCE. That is the Fed's uh, favorite gauge of inflation. It ticked up uh, a bare two-tenths of a percent in December. That was in line with expectations. Year-over-year basis, it was up 2.9 percent. That's the core. Uh, that was slightly less than the forecast. Our next guest says inflation is starting to cool, but the consumer remains resilient, defiant, and she doesn't expect the Fed to start cutting rates until May. Joining us now, Diane Swank, chief economist at KPMG, and senior economics reporter Steve Leisman joins us as well. Uh, Diane, welcome. Steve, welcome to you. Uh, Take me through what these numbers tell you and uh, what they imply about what the Fed might do and or say next week. Well, the Fed has got to be really happy with these numbers. They're just stunningly good. And the cooling of inflation through productivity growth, you just couldn't get it a better way. There's almost a tinge of the 1990s boom in here. And I think the Fed's got to be feeling pretty good about itself. That said, it still has sort of put itself in this position where it's not ready to cut rates in March. But I think by the time they're going to start 
discussing rate cuts in earnest at the January meeting. And then the debate's going to get really heated in March to have that May cut instead of waiting until June. This is, you know, at the same time, we have some people rotating into voting positions who've already sort of staked themselves out as wanting later rate cuts out there. And I think that's what the navigation is going to be. But it's going to be hard for Chair Powell to contain his enthusiasm at the press conference once again after this statement comes out next week. Steve, once you throw in uh, food and energy costs, the headline inflation, 0.2% for the month, held steady at 2.6 annually. The Fed would like to see it maybe a little lower, but this is pretty doggone close to their target, isn't it? Yeah, Tyler, where are the party hats and the kazoos? I'm just wondering. I mean, here we are. The thing that was the, the, the first good thing that happened was that we have the uh, core with a two handle on it for the first time. And well, who knows how long it's been it's been that low. I'm looking at the three month annualized um, core rate as one and a half percent. And then um, uh, Powell's super core, which is uh, uh, services ex uh, housing at 2.16%. The problem is not where it is now. The problem is how long it's been there, Tyler. And I think the trouble is, I, I only have this one statement by the Fed to go, for, to go on, which is when they're going to cut rates. And that is that inflation is heading back down towards the 2% target at a, for, at, sustainably. And that, you can't really make the sustainable argument especially just to undercut the data I just gave you, some of this three-month and six-month annual stuff can be very volatile because of things like seasonal adjustments. Bottom line is uh, you're going to have to see it there for a little bit. I don't think March is enough of a little bit for the, for the Fed to have that confidence that it's headed down to 2% on a sustainable basis. So well, that's, that, um, I think it needs a little bit more time, but the numbers are all real good. Diane, I see you nodding there, so you must agree. Yeah, so we're, yeah, we're actually, you know, Steve and I have not always been in agreement, but um, respectfully disagree in at times that we are 100% in agreement right now. The idea that the Fed wants to see, I mean, we were getting 0.16, so we got 0.17 on that core, so we were getting 2.9%. The Fed had to be getting similar numbers. They knew it was going to crack below three on the core um, PCE on a year over year basis at the end of the year. If we knew it, they had to know it. Um, that's the good news. But, you, you know, they want to see it down there for a little bit. And you're absolutely right. They want more proof that it's not only going to get to 2%, but stay there. They also don't want to get to 2% before they cut and they want to get to, they want to cut before they get to two percent which is that sort of difficult sort of balancing act they're doing but I don't think they're going to get to two percent on a year-over-year -year basis by May so I think we're in good shape for a May cut and that's when we've had it that is not necessarily where a lot of people think it will be the biggest bet is on June but I think May makes much more sense and there will be very heated debate about really getting that cut into May and I think you're going to see in March, them setting it up with an additional cut instead of just three cuts. We've always had four. They're going to add a cut into the um, sort of summary of economic projections, the dot plot, as they call it, for the year of 2024. Steve, why don't you jump in here? And I'd like Tyler. to get your thoughts on, on the growth numbers that came out. What was that yesterday? 3.3% yeah. in the fourth quarter? That's exactly where I wanted to go. And I'm, I'm fascinated by Diane's uh, um, take on this too. I'd like to point out that I always respectfully disagree. You can just ask 
Rick Santelli about that, but um, <laughs> when we do disagree. But but here's the thing. I, I'm looking I, at the I, wage I, numbers. I, I know in, you inside, do, Steve. I'm looking at the wage numbers, Diane, inside the personal income numbers. 6.7, 6.8% and rising. The question the Fed has to ask itself is whether that is something that should stay its hand or whether or not some of the better productivity numbers we've had recently say, you know what? It's okay. People can be making more and it not be inflationary if indeed we have these productivity numbers to back it up. I bring that up for another reason, which is that people keep pointing to the government stimulus as the reason why the consumer is doing well. But they're ignoring these wage numbers that are there, which to me does a lot better job of explaining what Tyler was asking about, which is the strength of the economy and the consumer. Diane? Absolutely. And I agree. I agree with you on that. And it is one of the things that is the great debate. Are wages a problem or not for inflation in the service sector? Will a ceiling, uh, a floor form under inflation, and that's what they're worried about, and that's why they need more time for exactly the reasons that you said before. They need more time to know that inflation's not only moving towards 2%, but going to stay there once it gets there. That's price stability, and I think that's very important. The elevated wages are justified if we have continued productivity gains, but I do also think it's important January is going to be, there's real upside risk to the January employment number. We laid off, on average, every January in the 2010s, 2.87 million people. That is a big seasonal to go against. Last year, we only laid off 2.5 million people. That's what gave us the strongest month of the year in January for 2023, which was over 400,000 job gains. So we could see an upside surprise on job gains. And we still have those union negotiated contracts, which buoyed wages in the month of December and had a slight uptick on those average hourly earnings, we could see those spill over into more increases in the month of January. And they're going to be watching that very closely. So I think these are the things, the reasons why the Fed doesn't go in March and why we never had a a cut in March, but why we've stuck to May, but also very moderate cuts, only 1% over the whole year, rather than the one and a half to two that we've seen markets fluctuate between. You know, I'm going to get Steve's uh, reaction to my question, and then I'll turn back to you, Diane. Um, What did the recent numbers say to you, Steve, or more pointedly to those in the in the in the chatter sphere uh, who expect the economy to slow down imminently? Uh, Now, we've seen some uh, warnings on on corporate earnings from from a variety of companies. Some of their their guidance has been a little soggy. Uh, But what do you what what do these numbers tell you about the prospect for a slowing economy in the first half of the year? The first thing, uh, Tyler, is to be humble uh, before your predictions here, because uh, economists and forecasters have been extremely humbled over the past year or two. And I think that speaks to a dynamic in the economy recovering from the pandemic that has not been one that's expected or followed any of the models that they had. This, 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 this number, 2023 GDP accelerated from 2022 amid one of the most ambitious rate hikes uh, cycles the Fed has ever been through. So you got to throw a lot of that stuff out. What we do know is that the economy seemed able to grow with these high interest or higher interest rates Mm -hmm. that we had. 
uh, a consumer kept on keeping on in part because of the government stimulus, but also because of higher wages. So um, I think to sit here now and say, yes, the economy is going to go into recession would be foolhardy. At the same time, you do have to suspect that there is some payback from these higher rates. I think the economy will slow. We haven't really had a quarter below potential in a long time. I think maybe the second and the third quarter might shape up to being below potential, but that will be a pause that refreshes. All right. Uh, quick final thought, Diane, uh, on that uh, point. I actually agree. I think, um, you know, first of all, there's a lot of momentum. Momentum is a very important thing. Consumers not only have healed their balance sheets with and help from the COVID aid, but also we've got wage gains, as Steve said. That's, you know, once you start going, it's very hard to stop someone from not only regaining what was lost to inflation, but want to improve their living mm -hmm. standards. And that's a lot of momentum to really stop. There will be additional feeling from the, a pinch from the rate hikes down the road. We're seeing debt compound much more rapidly on consumer balance sheets on the credit cards that they're not paying down as rapidly now. Right. But we are in a still very solid position for 2024. Diane Swank, Steve Leesman, a lot of respectful Ta agreement Tyler, there. I don't, yes, sir. I don't know what you're doing. Tyler, I don't know what you're doing this weekend, but at the Leesman family, we're taking out the party hats and we're celebrating the core with a two-hand along. Good, good. Break, break out the kazoos. I'm with you, I'll, man. I'll, I'll, I'll do that myself exactly. with some champagne, Steve. All right. Diane Swank, Steve Leesman, <laughs> right. thanks, folks. All right, coming up, Stiefel shares hitting a 52-week high after an earnings beat, but CEO Ron Krzyzewski says 2024 is going to be a, quote, transition year for the economy. We'll ask him why and what he expects from next week's Fed meeting after the break. Plus, the Biden administration pausing approvals of pending applications for new LNG exports. Former Energy Secretary Rick Perry calls it, quote, an act of economic hostility that will empower Russian President Vladimir Putin and hurt jobs in some key states. He'll join us to make his case. And as we head to break, here's a check on markets with stocks well off their highs. The Dow was up 166 points, now just 25. The exchange is back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Stiefel Financial hitting a fresh 52-week high this week after reporting strong fourth-quarter results on Wednesday that beat on the top and the bottom line. The firm also reporting full-year revenue of more than $4 billion, third-best year in history on that measure, thanks in part to record wealth management 
sales. Joining us now for a CNBC exclusive to talk about those results, the Fed and more, is Ron Kruszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel Financial. Ron, welcome. Good to have you with us, and congratulations on a very successful year. Uh, against some headwinds uh, in the business, it was, a, it was not, not a simple one at all. Um, let's talk a little bit about investment banking, which was uh, kind of a soft spot for a lot of uh, your competitors and your company as well. What do you see happening in investment banking this year? Is it going to be a better year than 2023? Well, I think it is going to be a better year. You know, it's, it, it is. Uh, we did have a, a good fourth quarter relative to trend, but uh, it was a difficult year. Uh, 2023, especially in equity investment banking, you know, capital raising was down, what, over 70 yeah. percent? M&A was down 50 percent. I mean, that, you know, that was a tough year, not only for us, uh, but across the industry. So as we look forward, because of many of the things we've been talking about on the economic front, we think that activity in our in institutional investment banking will be better in 24 than 23. That's not saying a whole lot, though, but it, it's, it's <laughs> definitely going to be better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, tell me about wealth management has been a strong part of your game for a long, long time. What percentage of total revenues is wealth, does wealth management represent as opposed to investment banking? Well, last year, probably 65 to 70 percent, mm-hmm. historically about 60 percent. Uh, so, you know, wealth management had a record year last year. And, of course, our, our institutional business was, was down uh, almost uh, dramatically. Uh, so wealth management has been the foundation of Stiefel's results for decades and continues such today. All right. Let's talk a little bit about how you see why you say this year could be a transition year uh, as opposed to uh, any other kind of year. What does that mean for your company and for the and for the markets generally? Well, you know, look, I, I, I listened with interest to your prior interview, and I think that the street, and certainly I, uh, running an investment bank in a bank, uh, would cheer for five to six rate cuts. And, yeah. you know, uh, but I think that bringing out, what was it, the party hats and the kazoos, uh, and, I, uh, and I often agree <laughs> with Steve, but on that one, I really don't agree. I think that that might, it might be a little early to be saying that inflation is conquered and, and rates are going to come down and, and we're going to do that. Hence, I think it's a transition year. Look, inflation's bottoming, but it's bottoming at 25 to 3%. And so what, what's it go when it starts trending back up? I just feel that we just had 11 straight rate increases. And to, to think that we flip into 2024 and we're going to have five to six rate decreases on one or two inflation numbers, especially with wages growing as, growing as strong as they are, I think is overly optimistic. Now, trust me, I, I'm talking my own book. I'm hoping for it. But as we advise investors, we think that sometimes you got to look at the consensus and look at the downside. And the downside is you only get maybe three, two maybe, uh, rate cuts. Mm-hmm. Remember, you got an election coming up, and I don't think you're going to see uh, something happening right before the election. I don't think it's going to happen in March. So you're dealing in that middle part of the year. We see three, maybe four. May, June, July. So, but still, that uh, lower yeah. rates, you, you would applaud that, I'm sure. You also are a little more, I think, maybe personally or maybe the, maybe the firm is, uh, you think that the street estimates of 11% earnings growth on the S&P 500 are a little uh, ebullient? 
We think so. We, we, we actually think uh, 6%. And that, that uh, makes our forecast really for the S&P 500 to be sideways in the first half of 24. Mm-hmm. Look, it's easy financial conditions, which the market thinks is going to get easier. We think are fully reflected, reflected in what is an expensive P.E. ratio, especially, you know, again, that we think earnings will be 6%, kind of half the street. At Stiefel. That's not just my view. I think that's yeah, our company's that's view. That's the company view. Let's talk about uh, the equity market, which you, you characterize as, uh, or the firm does, as relatively fairly valued right now. Uh, and you like some of the uh, sectors that were not really the superstar participants last year, like capital goods, energy, financial services, those among them. I guess you're, you're looking for a broadening out of market returns this year. We do. We, we think that those sectors, including financials, uh, will benefit from a, uh, you know, a growth, growing economy with sort of sticky inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we see that uh, with only three to four rate cuts, th- those will benefit the financials uh, and cyclical stocks for sure. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. We always, uh, we always uh, find it a pleasure to uh, spend some time with you. Thanks. I, I, I appreciate it. Uh, keep, keep those party hats in we'll the, keep in the, the party trunk hats. just for a little while. How are the, car- right? how are the Cardinals going to be this yeah. year? Are they going to be better? The Cardinals are going to be a lot better, okay? So I'm going to make a prediction they'll make the playoffs. Uh, of course, we, we help sponsor them, so I'm talking my own book. One, but one the, uh, have a great day, and thanks for having me on. One of the best baseball towns, probably the best baseball town in the country. Ron, thank you very much. Ron Krzyzewski of Steeple. Coming up, it's been nearly six months since the devastating fires in Hawaii, and since then, companies, celebrities, and others have donated a billion dollars. But where's the money going? We sent Jane Wells to find out. Jane? Uh, Tyler, I'm outside the fire zone. We're going to go in later today. But all this last week, I've been asking, who got the money? Who got the money? Show me the money. We got a few answers when we come back. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Uh, Nearly a billion dollars destined for the Aloha State as it recovers uh, from those devastating wildfires nearly six months ago. And amid all the pledges from celebrities in corporate America, Jane Wells is in Maui following the money. Jane. Hey, Tyler. Yeah, the uh, Lahaina remains closed to everybody as the Army Corps of Engineers finally just now begins debris removal. Uh, Nearly six months after the deadliest fire in modern U.S. history. We've been trying to track the nearly $1 billion in government and private money that's come in or been promised so far. For example, a lot was made of celebrities. Guy Fieri reportedly raised over $2.5 million, though my request for information on where it went has been unanswered. Oprah and The Rock started the People's Fund of Maui, and I've told they've given $50 million in $1,200 monthly stipends to over 8,000 people. And finally, yesterday, I talked to someone who said, yes, it's true. She's gotten it. People are getting it. They love Oprah. Jeff Bezos and Lauren Sanchez promised $100 million. Their spokesman says they've handed out 15 and a half so far to various organizations, including the Maui Humane Society, where they are still caring for 300 animals and pets from the fire. 
We spent about $2 million since the fire on fire-related animal care. Much help for small business owners, though the SBA says it's approved almost $300 million in loans. Danny White owned Maui Memories in the heart of Lahaina. It's now a total loss. She was underinsured like a lot of people, but she's opening a new store on another part of the island, hoping she can make enough to cover the rent. I have employees who are waiting to come back to me, and I want to support them too. The biggest problem remains long-term affordable housing. Over 5,000 people are still living in hotels, like the Royal Lahaina Resort. But every suggested solution here is challenged. Tyler, it's very difficult to get anything done in Hawaii. So many cultural issues, sacred ground everywhere. In fact, they haven't even figured yet where the final resting place for the debris, the debris is going to go. It's a lot of work ahead. Jane, what's happened to tourism in Maui? Well, it is coming back. It just, you know, dropped off like a cliff. The some of the resorts were closed for three months. It was over like 60% drop. It's now down about 14 or 15%, but the good news is so many other people are going to other islands. Overall tourism in the state of Hawaii, which is its number one industry, is only down about 1.5%. Uh, That's interesting. Thank you very much. Jane Wells, appreciate it. Now to Courtney Reagan for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. The State Department said today that they will pause funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Israel said 12 of its employees were involved in the October 7th attacks on southern Israel. The statement also said Secretary of State Blinken spoke to the United Nations Secretary General to say that there needed to be a thorough investigation. The agency's commissioner general said that investigations have already begun and that the employees were fired. The Biden White House is losing a top advisor next week after playing a key part in President Biden's immigration strategy for three years. Katie Tobin served as the senior director for Transborder Security and is leaving at a time where border policy is at the forefront due to the record levels of migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. And King Charles is doing well and will be spending at least a night in the hospital after receiving treatment for an enlarged prostate today. That's according to Buckingham Palace. Before going in for the procedure, he visited his daughter-in-law, Princess Kate, who also had surgery at the same hospital last week and is still there recovering. We wish them all the best. You know, I follow that story closely. Tyler, back Indeed over to you. Indeed we do. Thank you, Courtney. Courtney Reagan. Coming up, the Biden administration pausing approvals for new LNG exports with the president pointing toward the climate crisis as, quote, the existential threat of our time. We'll look at the fallout with the former Energy Secretary Rick Perry. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. President Biden hitting the pause button on new LNG export projects in what's being seen as a victory for climate activists. And while critics say this will embolden Russian's President Vladimir Putin in the Ukraine-Russia war, which has disrupted gas supplies in Europe, uh, the administration says the plan includes exemptions for national security should U.S. allies need more nat gas. Joining us now with more on this move is former Energy Secretary and former Texas Governor Rick Perry. Uh, Mr. Secretary Perry, or Governor Perry, uh, welcome. Good to have you back on CNBC. We appreciate Thank your time. You. Uh, the president has characterized this uh, as, among other things, a pause that sees the climate crisis for what it is, the existential threat of our time. I assume you don't agree with that. Well, nothing that I can think of is going to put more coal plants back to work than this pause, if you will, 
this is just bad public policy for a lot of reasons. If you really care about the climate, then you ought to be using clean burning American liquefied natural gas if you're a European. They're going to keep the lights on over there. There's not any doubt about that. So they're going to replace these uh, gas burning plants with the old coal plants. They're going to put them back into uh, into production. So what does that mean for America? Uh, well, it means not only are we going to see a lot of uh, economic impact in a negative way, we're going to see jobs lost. And these jobs aren't just in Texas and Louisiana, where most of these plants are. It's in Ohio. It's in Pennsylvania. So the political fallout of this is going to be pretty substantial, I will suggest to you. While you know, Biden's worried about, you know, he's fallen in the polls and, and he's looking for ways to, to get the, uh, the left, if you will, back mm -hmm. uh, supporting him. And this is what this is about. So, yeah, I was uh, going to ask you that, uh, Mr. Secretary. Do you see this then as, as really rather purely a political play to prove to uh, environmentalists in the, in the Democratic Party uh, that, that the president's bona fides in environmentalism are pure here? And it's, it's ironic because, as you point out, uh, one, some of the biggest uh, producing areas for LNG or for natural gas is Pennsylvania, a key swing state. Ohio, another one. Yeah, good point that you bring up, Tyler. It has the added benefit of being true uh, from the standpoint of how the, this action is going to be um, uh, affecting the United States. You know, you look at this administration and they make decisions uh, and put these orders into place because they can't get them through Congress. They can't get the American people to support them. So he does them unilaterally. And, and I will suggest to you, the American people are going to send a message in November, a pretty strong one, that, you know, we want the border closed for one thing. We want immigration policy that is thoughtful and not this open uh, border. I know that's a whole different issue, but it's the same concept. You can't get something done through Congress. Uh, the American people don't support it. But this president, to play to his political base, goes out and puts these things into place, whether it's uh, this anti-American uh, energy policy. And the other thing it's doing is sending a terrible message to our allies in Europe. Uh, we're supposed to be supplying them with the power that they need so that they're not held hostage by Russia. I, I suspect use this as a weapon. I suspect, uh, Mr. Secretary, if an environmentalist, uh, broadly uh, described, were sitting next to me right now, she or he's, uh, uh, his, hers or his response might be something like this. Well, we are already the largest exporter of LNG in the world. We, are, we have already grown our LNG uh, exports by a factor of three in the past five and a half years. And oh, by the way, these plants that, or installations that would uh, participate in the, in the export transshipment of LNG, they're not just five-year projects. They are things that are going to set in place uh, LNG use for a generation. And we are trying to decarbonize, to step back from. Now, listen, uh, natural gas is a cleaner fuel than coal. It is cleaner than oil. It's cleaner than a lot of alternatives out there. But but these plant, these uh, installations would set in stone then uh, a level of carbon emissions that we want to back away from. Could you just respond to that? Am I am I, am I all wet there or would that be kind of what an environmentalist might say? I suggest that's probably what they would say. It needs to have some basis in truth and fact. And the and the issue is the Europeans are going to keep their lights on. They're, they're not going to go live in the dark and the cold. 
And the way that that's going to happen is they're going to be using coal plants. We've already seen this. This transition's already back to coal is already happening. So the idea, if you care about the environment, as we make a transition over the next 20 or 30 years away from uh, these fossil fuels to small modular reactors, speaking of, where are the environmentalists when it comes to zero emission small modular reactors? Well, they're against those as well. So they're, they're, they're really hard to pin down other than to say, we don't like American uh, natural gas being sold. Mm. Um, it's okay for the Russians and the Qataris and the Iranians, but American natural gas, no, we're gonna stop that. Well, I will suggest to you that that is the head in the sand approach that will get you in trouble, both short term and long term. It's too irresistible to have you here and not ask you about politics, domestic politics, uh, and where you see, uh, would presume that you see uh, former President Trump uh, sort of waltzing to the Republican nomination uh, and into the into the fall's election. You happy about that? Yeah, well, I don't see um, any roadblocks in the way to that happening. I think um, President Trump is on his way to the nomination. And frankly, I hope to the presidency because I know the people that he will put into place. I know the policies that, that we will see there. And whether it's an economy that's growing, whether it's America being energy independent again, whether it's our allies being able to count on us and America being strong in the world again, mm -hmm. what, which one of those do you not like? If Nikki Haley were sitting next to you right now, what would you advise her to do? Well, I'll leave that up to her. I've uh, I've been in that uh, position of uh, coming up a little short, yes, you have. and uh, <laughs> uh, and you know I, I made the decision to step back and and uh, uh, look towards the future, and I think that's what uh, my advice to her would be. It, it's very clear that uh, Donald Trump's going to be the uh, the nominee, and uh, we need to come together, work together. The issue now is, do you want the continuation of the Biden policies that are strangling this country uh, in a lot of different ways, or do you want to go to policies that are economically strong, uh, energy policy strong, national security strong? That's the choice that the American people have. Well, I, I suppose uh, I need to push back a little bit there. The economy is doing pretty well. 3.3% in the most recent quarter. Uh, job growth has been pretty good. Uh, uh, that would be the defense that the Biden administration would make. Governor Perry, former Secretary Perry, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Lessons. Thank you to uh, Rick Perry. Coming up, you can't spell fundraising without AI, the eye-popping sums being raised by some of tech's biggest names to capitalize on the hype. Next, the exchange will be right back. There is a new funding frenzy in the startup world, this time led by tech titans, the likes of Elon Musk and Sam Altman, now looking to raise billions for projects uh, separate from their existing companies. Dieter Boza has the story for today's Tech Check. Hey, Dee. Hey, Tyler. So apparently it's not enough to be running the biggest existing companies in the world. These guys, they want to build the next generation as well. Where else? But generative AI, you mentioned Musk and Altman. Let me run through. And these are reports. Elon Musk is in talks to raise up to $6 billion for his startup. Brett Taylor of the former co-CEO of Salesforce, and now he's on the OpenAI board. He is reportedly close to finalizing $85 million uh, investment in his firm, Sierra. And then, of course, there's Sam Altman, 
who is reportedly raising billions of dollars to build out a network of AI chip factories. Now, these are not small ambitions, nor are they cheap. It is very expensive to build in this space. I mean, we've talked about the compute power that is needed that has led to billions and billions going to companies like OpenAI and Anthropic. So that's needed, but also there's this question of talent and the race is on as well, right? I was at this dinner last night um, with some of the key players in enterprise AI, the CEOs of Box, Databricks, and Salesforce AI. And we were talking about sort of what is needed to build and develop. They're all very excited. The CEO of Salesforce AI said that this is a moment like 1997. We're going to start to see the winners, but the winners right now may not even be the winners a few years from now, kind of like how Google displaced AltaVista and Yahoo ultimately. And this was really interesting from Ali Godsey, the CEO of Databricks. He said that a senior research, AI researcher, was demanding something like $20 million over four years. And those are just astronomical levels, Tyler. That's like athlete level of compensation. What, what is your reaction? I'm looking here at an Axios report indicating that the FTC may start to look at uh, big tech's investments in AI. Yeah, so we talked about this yesterday, and this follows sort of European regulators doing a similar thing, but they're looking into these deals, the type of deals that Microsoft inked with OpenAI, and looking to see that if it's kind of hindering the smaller startups mm -hmm. in this space, is Microsoft by investing you know, $13 billion into OpenAI, is it giving it an advantage? And that's probably relevant for some of these tech titans, although probably some of the smaller guys, because they start from such an advantage and they have an easier time raising money but it just goes back to this whole idea of who's gonna win this massive shift that some say is as big as the internet or the industrial revolution. Is it gonna be the incumbents, the Microsoft, Googles, Amazons that are able to spend these billions of dollars from their balance sheet or is it gonna be new players? Fascinating stuff. Deirdre Bosa all over it as always, thanks. All righty, coming up, this name is the second worst performer in the S&P 500 this week. But does the dip present a buying opportunity? We'll get the trade next when we reveal our mystery chart. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Major averages saw record highs this week, but that tide uh, didn't lift all boats. Some stocks posting major losses. And we're going to look at how to trade uh, those dips in a three bales and a buy week, week edition. Here with our trades, Gina Sanchez, Lido Advisors, Chief Market Strategist, CNBC contributor. Let's start with a stock that plunged after the company pre-announced mixed fourth quarter results. Disappointing guidance. That's been the story for some companies this week. DuPont shares down 12 percent uh, this week. Two firms downgraded uh, their ratings uh, to their hold equivalents. But Gina, you are steering clear altogether. You call this uh, a sell, right? DuPont. Yeah, so you know, DuPont is uh, is suffering on two fronts. You know, one is that they do have some cyclicality to a lot of the end users of their uh, chemicals. Now, given the GDP numbers, that should be fine. Um, but the other double whammy for DuPont is that China just is not uh, taking up. Uh, uh, they're destocking and it's just hurting them and they're not able to get over that. And I think that that's something that's probably going to continue. All right. So that's a bail. All right. Next up on our list of bails is a member of the so-called <laughs> Magnificent Seven that Jim Cramer said should be removed from the group. Magnificent no more. Tesla missed on the top and bottom lines after the bell on Wednesday had its worst trading day in over a year. On Thursday, $80 billion in, in market value wiped out. He, that, that could pay for a couple of Twitters right there. Your take on Tesla, Gina. 
Yeah, so Tesla's a tough one because they have such an advantage in terms of charging, uh, the charging network that they've built out. Uh, the, the car that they've built is beautiful, but they have, you know, Elon Musk has started to go off on these tangents. The Cybertruck is, in my opinion, ugly and, quite frankly, has actual safety issues that may prevent it from being sold in Europe. That's a problem. And you have Elon Musk himself sort of going on these tangential ideas um, that are taking away from his focus on Tesla. This is a problem. While I think they have the strongest charging network and they have the best car, their growth will naturally start to slow if they don't keep building on that. And there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why you know that the focus is just not there. Some very tentative guidance uh, out of Tesla earlier this week. Final bail is Humana. Humana, excuse me, having its worst day in two years. Yesterday, shares sliding more than 10 percent. Surprise fourth quarter loss and weak full year guidance as more Medicare patients opt for surgeries they put off during the pandemic that raises Humana's costs. Gina, you're buying, you're not buying the dip. No, you know, I'm not buying this one because you know, Humana is blaming costs and Medicare, the Medicare Advantage program on their, their, their miss. But if you look, for example, at United Healthcare, which is the largest issuer um, of, of med, you know, Medicare Advantage mm -hmm. uh, programs, they're able to manage this better. So I think this is a problem within Humana, not a problem with the Medicare Advantage program. And now we're going to get a buy, and that would be PayPal shares down uh, yesterday, fell yesterday following what the firm called an unforced communication error when new CEO Alex Chris told CNBC his reveal would shock the world, uh, but then just formally announced projects that had been teased last spring. Some shock. Now down 25% this year. Gina, you think this is an entry point on PayPal? That, I think, is our mystery chart, uh, down 5% for the week so far. It is, Tyler. And, you know, I feel like I'm going to go to my grave. On my gravestone, it's going to say, she said PayPal was cheap. Um, but, you know, the, the, what they were revealing were things that were already in the works. It, it actually cost a lot of money, and it was one of the reasons that they had problems um, really managing their margins and their earnings last year, uh, or earlier this year, I should say. Mm -hmm. uh, but those are really going to start to pay back. The, the features and the functionality that they're, that they're bringing out, in particular right. the fast lane, the ability to very quickly pay for things, that's important. And I think that that will be beneficial. Got to leave it there. Gina Sanchez, Lido Advisors, thanks very much. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.